Hello, everybody. This is Rufus Harper with Paranormal Stories. Welcome back again, if you're listening. Tonight, I'm going to talk about the story of a man called Dr. Jonathan Reed. went out in the woods near his home with his dog. He was hiking. He said his dog and him normally did this. They would go for walks out in the woods, and there was their time that they enjoyed together. Well, uh, he said his dog had ran ahead of him, and he heard his dog bark, but then he heard him bark again, and this time he could hear the distress in his dog's bark. He figured his dog had got into a fight with another animal, so he picked up a stick to use to get the other animal away from his dog. But as he came upon his dog, he saw a creature about the size of a 12-year-old child, and it appeared to look like his dog had the creature by the forearm. As he got closer, he could then see his dog didn't have a hold of the creature, but instead it looked like the creature had fused its arm with the dog's head. The creature then started to vibrate rapidly, like a paint shaker does. The creature ripped his dog from its jaw all the way down its spine, and then it appeared his dog was imploding in on itself. He states that all that was left of his dog was a pile of white ash where his dog was. To emphasize, when this man is telling this story, you can hear clearly the emotion in his voice and the fear he had to have felt during this incident. He then states he hit the creature in a rage across the head. He said he then became violently sick. He he believes it was caused by striking the creature. My, My own belief is like the creature emitted some type of radiation as a defense mechanism. He says he became deathly sick and lost control of his bodily functions, defecating and urinating on himself while vomiting. As he was laying on the ground, he started to crawl away from the creature. As he did, he he heard a humming noise and looked up. He had crawled underneath a solid black craft in the shape of an obelisk floating about two feet above the ground. As he placed his hand on the the thing to get himself up, he said he could feel like the the ship or whatever it was, the obelisk, felt like it was alive. And that he believed himself that the, the craft or whatever you could call it was actually looking for the creature he had hit. That they were like some kind of coexisting thing together. That, that either it was a ship or it was some kind of 
instrument to be like an interdimensional transporter or something. Well, he he then crawled all the way back to his vehicle because he felt like he had to get away and he had to hydrate himself because he had just lost all his functions and it was like all the water in his body had just came out and he was trying to make himself feel better. So he made it back to his vehicle and he was drinking water and he realized he had his camera on him. So with while in a shocked state of mind, this man returned to where he had hit the creature and he recorded the obelisk, the creature, took multiple videos of it. He said as while he was still in a shocked state of mind, he didn't want to leave the creature out because he didn't want other animals or people to come across it and them to get deathly sick like he did. So he wrapped the creature up in a thermal blanket and he carried it or drug it back to his vehicle. He said he found that the creature was strangely light because the creature looked like a 12 it was the size of a 12 year old child he later t says it was 53 inches in length he took the creature and loaded it in his, into his vehicle and while still in a shock state of mind drove all the way back to his home he said when he got to his home he uh, saw the first thing he saw when he pulled into his garage was his freezer he kept in his garage and uh, so he got the creature out and he put it in the freezer. He then went inside and without taking his clothing off or anything because he was still shock, in shock, he got in the shower and let the water just run on him. After he got out of the shower, he was trying to start making himself believe that what he saw was not real. He had to have some kind of illusion or some kind of event that took place that allowed him to see these things that and there's no way that they could actually exist <clears throat> and he was trying trying to make himself believe that what he had put in the freezer was not a creature but was his dog and that his dog had actually got killed or died somehow and that that's what brought the shock and the illusion on well he built up the courage he went out to the garage and he looked into the freezer and when he looked in he saw the creature and he realized that it was no way that this was an illusion. And that he, he, it had to have happened. So he goes back in and he feels like he said, I have to call somebody. I have to tell somebody. So he starts calling his friends. He calls his family members, calls his girlfriend. None answered. Then he calls his long, long his, uh, best, pretty much his best friend. His name was Corey or Gary. I can't recall. But he called him, and Gary came over, and uh, he told Gary what had happened. And Gary, according to him, was the type of person who was like, okay, yeah, no no way that happened. But uh, sometimes incidents like this happen where people hallucinate. He said, man, I'm being dead serious. This is a true story. I'm telling you the truth. This actually happened. And... Uh, he then told Gary, he said, I have the cre I have it out there in my freezer, and I'll prove it to you. He took Gary out there, and he showed Gary. And uh, he said when he showed Gary, Gary went in, was, like, shocked, too. He went into, a like, a stunned look. And, uh, well, he then, because Dr. Jonathan Reed is a psychologist, and he worked at a university, and he had friends who worked in other departments in the university so they decided that they were gonna 
do trying to do things to figure out what this creature was or I, I really don't know what his thoughts really were but he then went on to perform an autopsy on this creature with the help of others he he eventually told eight other people and it was a total of 10 people who were a lot of them were doctors and uh, scientists and other things like that they came over, they collected evidence, they collected all kind of stuff from it. He also claimed that he found a device, which he calls the Link Artifact, which is looks like a bracelet. And uh, he said he found it around the creature. When he hit the creature, he believes that it came off the creature. That's later on in the story I'll talk about. But he sent a lot of the stuff, he sent some of his evidence to a friend in another country because... He could tell that he kept hearing these weird clicks on his phone when he would talk to his friend Gary over the telephone. And then he tried to he contacted Mufon and uh, he what he thought it was Mufon and he told him about it and that he had they had scheduled an appointment to meet him and that he was gonna share the evidence and proof that he had with them. Well the day came for him to meet, and he meets these two two people at a restaurant, I believe is what he said. He gives them all the evidence and all the proof. Well, he don't hear nothing. They were supposed to contact him back, and he don't hear nothing from them. Well, he goes on to call Mufon. Mufon tells him that he had never, they had never had any uh, meeting with him. That they have no recollection of ever having contacted him. Or anything, and the number that the people had gave him to contact him was was not a existing number. Well, a couple day, another day goes by, and uh, the creature is still in his freezer, and uh, he said these people in all black come up to his, uh, come to his house, knock on the door. They come in. They then proceed to tell him that his whole life will change. If he doesn't give him what he, uh, he has. And this enraged him. Because he felt like. He he felt like they were threatening him. Which they probably were. They were probably threatening him. That if he didn't give up what he had. he They'd eventually kill him. Or kill anybody. That's how the men in black work. He said well I'm calling the police. They And they looked at him. So well, don't worry the police are with us. And as he looked outside. There was a Seattle police car. Parked behind their car. And as they left, so did the police. He then, later that day, I guess, went back into the freezer to look at the creature in the freezer because it became a habit thing with him. As he opened the freezer this time, the creature looked up at him and screamed. And he actually has recorded this scream. I have heard it, as well as anybody else who's listened to the Art Bell episode with him on it, because it's played on it. I have seen the photos. I have seen the videos. It's pretty extraordinary. He goes on to talk, talk about how he freaked out when it, the creature screamed. He left the freezer door open and he ran back into his house. Well, his friend Gary, he, he came over and he told Gary that it was happening. He said, we got a bigger problem. He called him on the phone and said, we got a bigger problem. And then he told him, come over. Gary came over and he took him back in. The freezer door had done been closed again on it. He opened it back up, 
and the creature screamed again. And this time, Gary took off running and didn't stop running. Couldn't reach the door. He he ran completely out of the house. And he said it, uh, it took him a minute, a little while to come back. But over time, the creature started getting used to Jonathan. And uh, he said it would stop screaming at him. And it started making chirping noises. Unique, like sort of like a bird or a dolphin. He said the creature he believed liked it in the freezer. Uh, maybe it was from a, a planet where it lived in cold or maybe it had to survive in cold or something like that. But he said the creature would get out of the cooler, sit in front of it, stare at him, and it started communicating with him telepathically. Well, time goes by. It's been, he said, about nine days. He leaves his house and he goes uh, to, with Gary somewhere. As he's coming back to his house, he notices all these white vans up in his yard. Throughout this time, his family and people he've worked with and friends, including a scientist that he had he had asked to come over, an associate with the, of his from the university, he was going to have doing an autopsy on it, come over. But he never showed up, and when he called him, he told him, he said, I have no, I can't be a part of this, I have nothing to do with this. He's, and he later found out that somebody had approached him and intimidated him, as well as some of his other friends, and some of them had actually been attacked. Some people had all kind of incidents taking place towards the people who were involved with him in this situation. Uh, when, he, he, when he sees these vans loading up stuff in his home, he just drives on by. He don't want to stop because he didn't want to. He didn't. He was scared, which I don't blame him. Seeing something like that, you never know what it was. You don't know. Finally, when they leave, he comes back home. He walks in and he notices they had ransacked his house, took almost everything in his home, including the freezer that the creature was in, and a multitude of everything else. He said he walks into the when he walked in the garage. He could literally see what looked like frosted footprints across the garage floor. And they like walked into the wall and disappeared. Well, he leaves. He leaves the country. He goes to Canada. Within a year, this man has lost everything. He has became homeless. He is constantly in paranoia. Uh, paranoia. He's suffering from severe PTSD. He's had multiple things happen to him where he's been abused physically and all kinds of situations. Well, he meets a group of people through a phone number. I don't know how he got the phone number because he don't claim talk about how he got it. But he got a phone number and these people helped him come back to being normal. All this time, he had become, well, before he had come to start calling the creature Freddy. And... He said that Freddy would pop in and out of his life and check on him pretty much. That they had him and this creature had built a bond. And a lot of people who he then goes on to work with a, a author who wrote a book based off of his events. And he wrote the book with him. And this author claims to have seen Freddy, has claimed to have seen the Lee Card effect. Has claimed to see multiple evidence. Uh, another person who's claimed to see multiple evidence is a uh, ex-army ranger who's pretty much like his security guard, who's walked with him for 15 years, who've had been a part of this situation. He's seen the link artifact. 
He's seen Freddy. He's seen all the other incidents that's happened and took place around him. And uh, I just think it's a pretty extraordinary story. And there is multiple evidence of this, that this man is not lying. It's all over the internet. I mean, he is, like I said at the beginning, told the same story for 23 years. Dr. Jonathan Reed, to me, seems like a person who has actually witnessed and been a part of an extraordinary extraterrestrial incident. And supposedly, the Link artifact, that, according to the ex-Army Ranger who has been with him, said that Jonathan Reed can actually activate and use this artifact. He puts it on, and it's a, some kind of teleporting device. And just like how the extraterrestrial had vibrated like the paint shaker when it killed his dog, he said that when he puts on the device, his body vibrates like that. And, and maybe it vibrates at some kind of other frequency that allows him to teleport. I don't know. I have never actually looked at the technology. and I, It's supposed to be some uh, extraordinary technology based off of metals from out of this world that can't be found on the earth. And it's got microfibers, uh, layers and layers and layers and layers of microfibers built into it. And it's been studied by multiple uh, places throughout the world. Uh, this man has sent evidence and... Uh, other he the other devices uh, everything he has across the world to keep it safe so that it can't be taken from him which is very intelligent in my book because if the government knew where it was they would take it from him and he would be no more but i suggest to everybody who's listening that you go out and you check out jonathan reed's story it's a very extraordinary one Hello everyone, this is Rufus Harper. Welcome back if you've been gone uh, during our little break. Now I'm going to talk about the incident that took place in the 1955 Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Uh, they actually have an event nowadays called the Little Greenman Festival because of this event. Uh, it is alleged encounter... It says, why are aliens so often depicted as little green men with bulbous heads and oversized eyes? The mythology began in part on the night of August 21, 1955, when a large extended farm family called the Suttons arrived breathlessly at the Hopkinsville police station in southwestern Kentucky. The story of a terrifying siege by otherworldly beings would become one of the most detailed and baffling accounts of alien close encounter. On record, notable for the large number of witnesses, nearly a dozen, the duration of the encounter lasted for several hours, and the close proximity between the witnesses and creatures, sometimes just a few feet away, the incident quickly became regional and even national news. The alleged encounter occurred on the Sutton's farm in the tiny rural hamlet of Kelly, Kentucky, where the family lived in an unpainted three-room house without running water telephone, radio, TV, or books. Of all the details of the story, the UFO landing, and the appearance of small alien creatures, one fact is undisputable. When the eight adults and three children arrived at the nearby Hopkinsville police station at about 11 p.m., they were genuinely terror-struck. 
These aren't the kind of people who normally run to the police for help. Police Chief Russell Greenwell later told investigators what they do is reach for their guns, yet they're here they were women and children, hysterical, and one man with a pulse of 140 beats per minute, measured by an investigator. They were said to be small metallic humanoids, impervious to bullets. There's a picture that shows what looks to be, it's hard to explain, it's like it has the head of a frog, but with gigantic bat ears, a body with a, a bigger upper torso and small legs, long extended arms, what looks like long fingers with claws. According to accounts given to the police at about 7 p.m. on the hot Sunday evening, Sutton family friend Billy Ray Taylor was fetching water from the backyard well when he saw a silvery object real bright with an exhaust all the colors of the rainbow. As he later recounted it, came silently towards the house, passed over it, stopped in the air, and then dropped straight to the ground. Taylor, 21, and his 18-year-old wife had come from Pennsylvania to visit Lucky Sutton, with whom he had worked on Traveling Carnival. The Sutton's 50-year-old widow and matriarch, Glenny Lakeford, her two older sons and their wives, a brother-in-law, and the widow's three younger children, 12, 10, and 7, didn't take Billy Ray seriously, laughing off his UFO account. An hour later, alerted by the dog's incessant barking, Lucky and Billy Ray went to the back door and made out a strange glow, in the midst of which they spied a small humanoid creature about three and a half feet tall. It had an oversized head, almost perfectly round, its arms extended, extended almost to the ground, its hands had talons, and its oversized eyes glowed with yellowish light. The body gave off the eerie shimmer in the light of the night's new moon. They said as if made of silver metal. Terrified, the two men grabbed a 20-gauge shotgun and a 22 rifle and fired at the little man, its hands now raised as it held up at gunpoint. As it came toward the back door, they reported that it then did a flip, scrabbled upright, and fled into the darkness. Shortly after, the men saw a similar creature appear in a side window and fired through the window screen. Still impervious to bullets, the little man again flipped, then disappeared. I went out in the hallway and crouched down next to Billy when I saw one approaching the door. Mrs. Lakeford told Isabel Davis, author of an extensive report called Close Encounter at Kelly and Others of 1955. It looked like a five-gallon gasoline can with a head on top and small legs. It was a shimmering bright metal like on my refrigerator. The drama escalated when Taylor stepped outside under the small overhanging roof and those behind him saw a claw-like hand reach down and touch his hair. The group screamed and pulled Taylor back, while Lucky shot above the overhang and then at another similar creature in a nearby tree. It floated to the ground and then scurried into the woods. The Suttons moved inside and spent several hours listening for movements, hearing mostly occasional scratches on the roof. At 11, 11 p.m., the whole group ran for the cars and hightailed it to the Hopkinsville police station at top speed. After the local police chief called for backup, his team was joined at the Sutton Farm by state police, military police from nearby Fort Campbell, and a photographer from the Kentucky New Era. There, investigators found shell casings from the gunshots, but no other evidence. Neither could they find proof of heavy drinking. According to the Sutton matriarch, liquor was not allowed in the farmhouse. Once the police and others left, 
Though the creatures returned between 2.30 a.m. and daybreak, Mrs. Lakeford says she saw one glowing repeatedly by her bedside window, its claw-like hand on the screen. In the following days, after radio stations and newspapers, including the New York Times, reported the incident, hunters of curiosity seekers descended on the farm, often ridiculing the Suttons as ignorant or fraudulent. When no trespassing signs proved useless as discouraging them, the family tried charging admission, 50 cents for entering the grounds, $1 for information, 10 for taking pictures. After that, skeptics blasted them as fortune-seeking fabulous. As the Kelly story spread into the world, it took on a life of its own. The number of little men grew to a dozen or more. A few years later, the little metallic men were conflated with an Eastern Kentucky's woman report of a flying saucer and a six-foot-tall man in green, helping launch the myth of little green men. The day after the incident, the police... Investigators returned to the farmhouse searching for evidence of a saucer landing, footprints, blood trails, or scratch marks on the roof. They found nothing. Bud Lidwood, a local radio station employee, interviewed the adult eyewitnesses and made drawings based on their accounts. According to Davis, he was impressed by the remarkable specificity and consistency. Even though the men were away from the farmhouse all day, unable to coordinate with the others. While the incident eventually attracted the attention of the Air Force, UF Investigation Program Project Blue Book documents suggested that its team never officially pursued the matter beyond checking in with their Fort Campbell counterparts who had been briefly at the scene the first night. One of the most thorough investigations of the Kelly incident was undertaken in 1956 by UFologist Isabel Davis and published several decades later by the Center for UFO Studies group founded by astronomer Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Project Blue Book's civilian investigator, her nearly 200-page report, co-written with Ted Blotcher, includes detailed maps, drawings, documentary records, summaries of similar accounts around the world, and interviews with several Sutton family members and police investigators. Davis summarized the latest concerned about the lack of physical evidence but to her reckoning, none of the possible explanations, a deliberate hoax, a publicity play, group hallucinations, made sense. While questions arose about whether the young men were exaggerating, possibly fueled by hidden stores of liquor, Davis's strong impression after meeting Mrs. Lankford was one of a somber, non-nonsense matriarch who abhorred the limelight and had no reason to lie. None of the witnesses, Davis noted, had any history of making preposterous allegations. In 2006, Joe Nichols, Senior Research Fellow of the International Committee for Skeptical Inquiry and a self-styled paranormal investigator, reviewed the accumulated evidence in an article entitled Siege of the Little Green Men, the 1955 Kelly, Kentucky Incident. In it, he raised suspicion about what he called Billy Taylor's embroidered testimony. He matched Taylor's UFO sighting with similar reports from that day was suggested a small meteor in the vicinity. As for the little men, Nickel floated an explanation used for other alien encounter stories. Owls, in particular, the great horned owl, a.k.a. the hoot owl, was long, has long wings that could be mistaken for arms, along with talons, yellow eyes, long ears, and round head that might also match the little men's description. 
As for their metallic shine, Nichols suggests they could have easily been reflecting moonlight. But while hoot owls are known to be active at dusk and extremely aggressive when defending their nests, some investigators question characterizations of the creatures as hostile to some. Their behavior that night and Kelly appeared to simply be curious. To me, this is a pretty extraordinary story. And uh, I know they have a festival up here every year in Kentucky over it. And that would be terrifying to experience, especially at that time. Not being like we are now. We know of aliens. Uh, we see television and movies of extraterrestrials and all kind of things like that. So our age, we're more prone to know that these things exist and could actually believe it if we saw it more. But I think that was a pretty extraordinary story. Hello, everyone. If you're still listening to the Paranormal Stories, I have one more story to tell on this podcast. I appreciate you listening. And uh, this story is about a Air Force pilot. Um, my bad, a Kentucky Air National Guard pilot. On January 7th, 1948, 25-year-old Captain Thomas F. Mantle at Kentucky Air Nas- a Kentucky Air National Guard pilot died in the crash of his P-51 Mustang fighter after being sent in pursuit of an unidentified flying object. The event was among the most publicized early UFO incidents. Later, investigation by the United States Air Force Project Blue Book indicated that Mantle may have died chasing a skyhook balloon, which in 1948 was a top-secret project that Mantle could not have known about. Mantle pursued the object in a steep climb and disregarded suggestions to level his altitude at high altitude. He blacked out from lack of oxygen and his plane went into a downward spiral and crash. In 1956, Air Force Captain Edward J. Ruplut, the first hit of Project Blue Book, wrote that the Mantle crash was one of three classic UFO cases in 1948 that would help to define the UFO phenomenon in the public mind and would help convince some Air Force intelligence specialists that UFOs were a real physical phenomenon. The other two classic sightings in 1948 were the Shaw's-Widdit UFO encounter and the Gorman dogfight. Historian David M. Jacobs argues that Mantle's case marked a sharp shift in both public and governmental perceptions of UFOs. Previously, the news media often treated UFO reports with a whimsical or glid attitude reserved for silly season news. Following Mantle's death, however, Jacobs notes the fact that a person had died in an encounter with an alleged flying saucer dramatically increased public concern about the phenomenon. Now, a dramatic new prospect entered through, though about UFOs, they might be not only extraterrestrial, but potentially hostile as well. Thomas Mantle was an experienced pilot. His flight history consisted of 2,167 hours flying time, and he had been honored for his part in the Battle of Normandy during World War II. On 7th January 1948, Goodman Army Airfield at Fort Knox, Kentucky, received a report from the Kentucky Highway Patrol of an unusual aerial object 
near Madisonville, Kentucky. The reports of a westbound circular object 200 feet, 250 to 300 feet, 80 to 90 meters in diameter, were received from Owensboro and Irvington. At about 1.45 p.m., Sergeant Quentin Blackwell saw an object from his position in the control tower at Fort Knox. Two other witnesses in the tower also reported a white object in the distance. Colonel Guy Hicks, the base commander, reported an object he described as very white and about one-fourth the size of the full moon. Through binoculars, it appeared to have a red border at the bottom. It remained stationary seemingly for one and a half hours <clears throat> Observers at Clinton County Army Airfield in Ohio described the object as having the appearance of a flaming red cone, trailing a gas gaseous green mist, and observed the object for, um, for around 35 minutes. Another observer at Lockbourne Army Airfield in Ohio noted just before leaving it came to a very near the ground, staying down for about 10 seconds, then climbed at a very fast rate back to its original altitude of 10,000 feet leveling off and disappearing into the overcast, hitting 120 degrees, and its speed was greater than 500 miles per hour, 800 kilometers an hour, in level flight. For F-51D Mustangs of C-Flight, 165th Fighter Squadron, Kentucky Air National Guard, one piloted by Mantle, were already in the air and told to approach the object. Blackwell was in radio communication with the pilots throughout the event. One pilot's Mustang was low on fuel, and he quickly returned to base. Ruppel notes that there was some disagreement amongst the air traffic controllers as to Mantle's words as he communicated with the tower. Some sources reported that Mantle had described an object which looks metallic and of tremendous size, but according to Ruppel, others disputed whether or not Mantle actually said this. The other two pilots accompanied Mantle in steep pursuit of the object. They later reported they saw an object but described it as so small and indistinct that they could not identify it. Mantle ignored suggestions that the pilots should level their altitude and try to more clearly see the object. Only one of Mantle's wingmen, Lieutenant Albert Clements, had an oxygen mask and his oxygen was in low supply. Clements and the third pilot, Lieutenant Hammond, called off their pursuit at 22,500 feet. 6,900 meters. Mantle continued to climb, however. According to the Air Force, once Mantle passed 25,000 feet, 7,600 meters, he blacked out from the lack of oxygen, hypoxia, and his plane began spiraling back towards the ground. A witness later reported Mantle's Mustang in a circling descent. His plane crashed on a farm south of Franklin, Kentucky, on the Kentucky-Tennessee state line. Firemen later pulled Mantle's body from the Mustang wreckage. His seatbelt was shredded. His wristwatch had stopped at 3.18 p.m., the time of his crash. Meanwhile, by 3.50 p.m., the UFO was longer visible, no longer visible to observers at Godman Army Airfield. The mental incident was reported by newspapers around the nation and received significant news media attention. A number of sensational rumors were also circulated about Mantle's crash. According to UFO historian Curtis Pibbles, among the rumors were claims that the flying saucer was a Soviet missile. It was an alien spacecraft that shot down Mantle's fighter. When it got too close, Captain Mantle's body was found riddled with bullets. The body was missing. The plane had completely disintegrated in the air, and the wreckage was radioactive. However, no evidence has ever surfaced to substantiate any of these claims, and Air Force investigations specifically refuted some claims such as the supposedly radioactive wreckage. Captain Ruplet 
wrote that I had always heard a lot of wild speculation about the condition of Mantle's crash F1, F-51, so I wired for a copy of the accident report. It said that Mantle's body had not burned, not disintegrated, and was not full of holes. The wreck was not radioactive, nor was it magnetized. Mantle was the first member of the Kentucky Air National Guard to die in flight. According to John Th- Throwbridge, historian of the Kentucky National Guard, there is a real X-Files twist to this, too. Mantle lived almost his entire life in Louisville, but he was born in a hospital in Franklin, only a few miles from where he was killed. To me, that's a pretty extraordinary story. I mean, I think the man actually encountered a UFO, and the government was just trying to cover it up like they do most things. But that's not for me to claim for you. I mean, you can speculate, but I, I recommend that you just look into the story. This was the three stories for this podcast today, and I appreciate anyone who listens. This and I, this is all I got for tonight. Thank you for listening to Paranormal Stories. <laughs>